0: Would you join with me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations in all our hearts be acceptable to you, our strength and our salvation. Amen. After the waiting for Christ's coming in Advent, after the joy of Jesus' birth in Christmas, after the revelation of Christ's glory on Epiphany, we come now in the church year, and fittingly at the beginning of a calendar year as well, to the living of these days, the season where we learn how to walk in the light of God that has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus. And in the wisdom of the lectionary, that walk begins each year with Jesus' baptism. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the event of Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan River, although each of them tells the story a little differently. Mark, by all accounts the earliest of the Gospels, jumps right into his book with John the Baptist's arrival on the scene as herald of the Messiah. And then gives three utterly unadorned verses to Jesus' baptism. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. That's Mark. Luke gives a little more background to the event, describing the first meeting of Jesus and John when they were both in utero, as Jesus' mother Mary and her cousin Elizabeth came together to support each other in their equally unorthodox pregnancies. Luke's specific lead up to Jesus' baptism includes a little more preaching from the wild and prophetic John, as he stands in the Jordan and calls the crowds to take part in a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' own baptism in Luke's account seems almost to go unnoticed. He's just one of the crowd. It's once Jesus is praying while the water is dripping down his head that the Spirit comes and speaks. So here is Luke's version. Now when all the people were baptized, And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. In Matthew's gospel, there is no previous relationship mentioned between Jesus and John. The first chapter, first verse of chapter 3 just says that John appeared in the wilderness, calling the people to repentance. Only Matthew, however, includes the conversation between John and Jesus before the baptism actually happens, as we heard earlier. And it's a weird conversation at that. It reminds me a little of the cartoon chipmunks, who are always overzealous in their politeness. You go first. Oh, no, 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 you go first. No, 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 I must insist you go first. Finally, after this exchange, John consents to baptize Jesus. And as Matthew continues the story, the voice from heaven speaks to all those gathered at the water, saying, this is my son, the beloved, rather than addressing Jesus alone, as it does in Mark and in Luke. Even with these variations, though, there are important similarities in all three Gospel accounts. First, there is John's significance in Jesus' story and the very fact that he baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, which is also corroborated by non-Biblical sources. Second, It's important to note that John preached in the prophetic tradition and he called people to repentance. Third, in good prophetic fashion, John's preaching brought him into conflict with the religious authorities and that plays out later in each of the Gospels. And four, John understood his place as the herald of Jesus, God's Messiah. And it's also apparent if you read between the lines of all these accounts and do a little research into church history that Jesus' baptism by John was in fact scandalous. It is why Luke goes to such pains to show that they were related and that John actually submitted first to Jesus when they were both still being carried in their mother's wombs. It's why Matthew includes that awkward conversation, concluding that Jesus' baptism was fulfilling God's justice and righteousness. And Mark, as Mark does, just launches into the story without any context, maybe hoping the whiplash speed with which he tells it will deter any questions about the theological propriety of John baptizing Jesus. In all three Gospels, John very clearly and publicly states that he came to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The people who came to John in droves did so out of an awareness of a need for a change of heart, a desire to change their lives, a turning around of their intentions to align themselves with God's will and God's heart in preparation for God's Messiah to arrive. Here is the crux of the scandal. If Jesus was the Messiah, why would he need to prepare his heart for his own arrival? As we know from various New Testament passages and other early Christian sources, Jesus was understood to be entirely without sin and therefore without any need to repent or be forgiven. As the incarnate son of God, the anointed one, he was already perfectly at one with God's heart and God's will. So why would he need to be baptized to show a change of heart? And there was an authority differential at play as well. How could the fully divine son of God submit to John's utterly human experience of baptism. Shouldn't Jesus be the one to have baptized John? And that's the conflict that's alluded to in the conversation Matthew records before Jesus goes into the water. Those three gospel writers' different approaches to Jesus' baptism show their own working out of the dilemma of how a sinless Jesus, the incarnate child of God, would consent to be dunked by John in the waters of baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Much has been made and should be made of the heavenly pronouncement that comes as Jesus emerged from those waters, whether we take it as a word to Jesus or a word about Jesus. The voice of God that claims and makes public Jesus' relationship with God is one that every child of God needs to hear, as Sarah so beautifully read for us in that book. Every child of God needs to hear again and again their belovedness. Don, Mary, Emily, Bob, David, Nancy, Carol, Tom, Oliver, Cora, Zoe, John, Every, every one of us, every one of you, whatever your name. You, God says, you are my beloved child. And with you, I am well pleased. In all the Gospels, John, God pronounces that pleasure and connection before Jesus has done a blessed thing which is a good reminder that God's love and blessing is not contingent on our doing anything, messianic or otherwise. It is simply the way God relates to us being God's children. And I think that gets to the central meaning of Jesus' baptism and to the central, truly scandalous claim of our Christian faith. That God relates to God's children in deepest love by becoming one of us, inhabiting a body, feeling all the feels, experiencing both physical hurt and the existential pain of separation from God, and experiencing repentance, turning, change coming back into the flow of God's grace there by the waters of the Jordan River in the midst of the crowds of hungry, needy people seeking hope, seeking change, seeking God, Jesus steps in it. I am being deliberate using the term stepping in it with all of its smelly connotations. I could have said, Jesus stepped in. Usually that refers to an instance where there's an absence that needs filling. A relief pitcher steps in to keep the game going. A temp steps in when an employee is on leave. It's not their ultimate place, but they fill a gap until things go back to normal. I've stepped in as pulpit supply in many places when a pastor has been ill or away. Usually, someone who steps in has gifts to offer that will bring short-term help to a situation. But Jesus didn't just step in short-term to help John publicize his baptism gig. He literally immersed himself in our humanity, the good, the bad, and the ugly, both in the moment and for all time to show us just how fully God is in it with us. Or I could have said that Jesus stepped into it, which to my mind at least seems a little timid, dainty. One steps into a carriage to be carried in style. One steps into a pool tentatively to test the waters. But there was nothing hesitant, temporary or elite about Jesus offering himself to go under the current of the Jordan. He went all in. In his baptism, Jesus stepped in our reality and and identified entirely with us. Our sinfulness, suffering, temptation, even death, all of it. He put both feet down in the muck to stand as one with us, which if you look at most of history is not the way a savior God is supposed to act. Years ago, when I was the pastor of a church in Vermont, one of the members came up to me after worship with his son who was about five at the time and kind of pushed him toward me saying, Troy has a question. I told him you would answer this one. And the boy asked, does God bleed? I remember precisely where I was standing in the vestibule of the church by the big green double doors which opened out onto one of the most photographed town greens in New England. I sat down on the stairs to give myself a little time, stairs that went up to the sanctuary I invited Troy to sit down with me and I said, well, let's think this through. We believe that God came to be one of us in Jesus, a person just like us. And Jesus bled. So yes, God bleeds. Okay, Troy said, and then he skipped off with his dad. (laughs) Simple answer but with enormous consequences. It is understandable why not only Jesus' baptism, but his crucifixion was a scandal, a stumbling block, which is what that word in Greek literally means, that kept many faithful Jews who were looking for the Messiah from believing that Jesus was the one. Because how could God lose, bleed, suffer, die? We are no less skeptical about that as a culture today. Actually, in some at least extreme right-wing Christian circles, we want God to be the winner, the one who will strong arm his, and I use the male pronoun deliberately, his enemies into submission. Maybe some of you saw the memes that were making the circuit last fall of a truck bearing a poster of Jesus with six-pack abs toting an automatic weapon, and the words, Jesus loves guns. This Jesus, who was nowhere in the Bible, by the way, is more likely to step on or over or around those in need rather than in their reality with them. Even the less extreme among us, however, can still get a little uncomfortable around the idea of Jesus, God's anointed, our Savior, fully embodying the bodily functions of our humanity and all that that means. Just last week after worship, a few of us were talking when someone said, next time Epiphany rolls around, couldn't we leave out the fourth verse of We Three Kings? You know, the one about myrrh and gloom and doom and Jesus sorrowing and sighing and bleeding and dying. Can't we just skip that verse? We struggle with seeing God in the actual muck with us, stepping in the cow pies of our lives with both feet. The struggle is not new. Six centuries before Jesus submitted to being immersed in the baptism waters, when Israel had been conquered and exiled to Babylon for a generation, the prophet Isaiah wrote of God's suffering servant, who would bear God's spirit and bring justice. The passage Isaac read for us today is the first of four servant songs in the latter chapters of Isaiah passages both beautiful and startling in their description of God's chosen servant who would tend to the bruised and broken without trampling over them, whose own wounds would provide balm for the injured, who would endure despite disgust from others, who would release captives, bring sight to the blind and offer light to all who sat in darkness. Isaiah's suffering servant is also described as one who is willing to step fully in the muck of human life, to bear our iniquities and be despised, to go into dungeons and darkness in order to bring people out into freedom and light to see where oppression and inequity is rampant in order to bring justice, and to be gentle in tending to those who were already crushed and wavering. Though there has never been conclusive scholarly agreement as to whether this servant was an individual or perhaps referred to the whole of Israel, God's people itself, it is no wonder that the early followers of Jesus saw him as the fulfillment of these prophecies. And wherever we see these prophecies being fulfilled today, where water is being brought to those who cross the desert, where children are given a chance to be free, where suffering is met with compassion, that is Jesus still stepping in it with us. Jesus walked the walk of the suffering servant. In his baptism, he willingly plunged into the reality of all our humanness, both to show us God's intimate love and to show us how we, as God's other beloved children, are ourselves to walk in the light of that love. We walk that walk like Jesus by fully, fearlessly, humbly, and compassionately entering into the miracle and misery of humanity and stepping in it, carrying God's light as we go. And we do that no matter what season it is in the church year. And as we do that, no matter what season of the church year, the work of Christmas will have begun to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among people, to make music in the heart. May it be so. Amen, amen.